All right. So thank you, everybody, for taking the time to join in and listen to the first podcast that I have brought in quite a long time. So uh, this podcast is actually going to be hosted by none other than my friend, M.B. Wild. Uh, MB has uh, taken the last couple of weeks to convince me to do a flip the mic style interview uh, where I have agreed to answer uh, questions about uh, my past, what has brought me to the uh, place where I am today. So tune in, sit back, relax, and enjoy the next two hours of uh, conversation with MB Wild. Enjoy. Okay, well, Renegade, uh, Chris, first of all, I want to say I think this is uh, a great idea for you to let me flip the microphone on you just a little bit and, I don't know, try to get to know you a little bit. So, I mean, I uh, look, I'd like to open here. Um, so, my name is MB Wild, and I'm in a group chat with uh, Chris. And it's a group chat you've probably heard about on the underground a little bit. It's called the Grog. It's a great, wonderful group of guys. And in that group, we've gotten to know each other pretty well over the last year or more. And, you know, part of what's come up in that is that as we've gotten to know each other, uh, you know, this guy, Chris Renegade EDC, has taken on a little bit of myth in some ways. The guy is an incredibly hard worker. He generates some incredible products. He's a craftsman. He cares about the last 10 thousandths of an inch on just about everything he touches. And, you know, he's getting ready, you know, Chris is getting ready to release a knife into the knife world. And this knife is called Gungnir. Try to talk about it a little bit. And what I think is so interesting is, you know, when you see makers release knives, I think one of the things that happens is that we just kind of view that product in isolation. Like it just sort of generates out of the ether and it, it goes up on a storefront and it's very impersonal. But to me, there's a story here and there's a story about where this knife came from, but I always like to know a story of the person who made it. So when I talk with makers, when I interview makers a lot behind the scenes, and I, I normally don't even put up that content. We just kind of talk behind the scenes. I always like to know their origin story. Where'd you come from? Uh, I do interviewing a lot in my regular work in the course of my work. And so I asked Chris if he would be willing to flip the microphone a little bit and to talk about his story. So that's more or less how we got here. And, and Chris, I really appreciate you allowing it to happen. And, oh, sure. uh, you know, just one question to open here for you. Why did you say yes? Um, you know, I think, I think for, for a number of reasons. And I think the, the primary one is, is because of the, the Grog group itself. You know, we've had a lot of really in-depth conversations about makers, you know, our favorite makers in that group. And, and we've gone into um, basically any information that we had on the makers. So, you know, when we look at, at people like um, Tim Reeve and Joseph Vero and the guys over at Keenison, uh, you know, we, we dive into the knife and then we dive, in, dive into the people that, that make it. And it just gives you so much more of a bond with with that item, you kind of connect with, with the makers a little bit more, you know, we, we see them on Instagram and they're, they're kind of these inhuman specimens that are doing, you know, really, really great things. But in reality, they're just another, another person. 
and because my my whole provisions company and my whole Instagram has really been about forming connections and bonds with with people, um, getting those relationships, building on those relationships and getting to know people. I think that doing a, a flip the mic like this is one of those ways that I can still remain, you know, just another guy in the uh, in the grog, you know, the the pub, uh, if you will. Uh, I'm not that that unobtainable figure uh, that someone uh, feels like they can't reach out to and, and have a conversation with. Okay, so I agree with that completely. And dear listener, note that I had to work Chris over for a couple of weeks to get him to do this. He's not the sort of guy who would just, you know, take pictures of himself and put it on his Instagram. That's not who he is. So <laughs> I hope that it's as much of a treat for everyone listening in uh, as it is for me uh, for learning Chris's story. And I do want to tell you just real quick, if you're listening, that not every part of this story is rosy. In fact, there's some stuff in, in here that is a little intense. And so if you're not interested or you don't like stories that have a a kind of a dark beginning in their origin story, you may want to skip ahead in tonight's programming uh, and rejoin a little bit down the road. I promise you that there is a good ending on the story, but I don't know that the beginning would be called good. And so um, just keep in mind as you're listening that there is a a bit of intense content here. Um, So, okay, so Chris, let's kick off here. Uh, First of all, we're sitting at the corner of a bar together as best as we can be. Uh, here on the internet, what are you drinking tonight? Oh, I am drinking Balvini Doublewood, uh, which is a, a 12-year single malt scotch. Hey, are you there? Yeah, yeah, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, you cut off there just for a second. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, okay, so Doublewood, I've, I've got a Napogue Castle going, which is a cheaper bottle and oh my gosh it's so good it, it's like a campfire in a glass mm. yeah this this balvini has just a touch uh just a touch of smoke uh but really those kind of nice uh fruity notes butterscotch um little little tiny bit of peat in there just absolutely delicious raisins mm. Okay, so just short version here, but so why are you a whiskey guy? Why is it whiskey? Why is that? Why is that the drink of choice for you? Because if we'd have gotten this up on YouTube, there were some data issues. If we'd have had this on YouTube. You guys would be seeing the wall behind his desk, <laughs> and it's it's literally probably fifty or hundred bottles of whiskey, you know, backlit. It's absolutely gorgeous. But why whiskey? Um, I think whiskey. Uh, whiskey to me is one of those. One of those items that I think is misunderstood by the the majority of people out there in the world. You know, most people uh, would would consider themselves, I would say, frat drinkers, or what I call frat drinkers, where you know you're taking a shot, you're taking a chaser, you're you're getting to that buzz as as quick as possible. And with with me drinking, and we'll we'll get into um, you know some of my my childhood uh, a little bit later on. But I've, I've always had reservations about certain things like um, prescription medications and things that have things that can be addictive. So when I've gone through through whiskey, it's about the experience for me. It's not about getting a buzz. It's not about getting drunk. It's about sipping it and understanding the complexity, understanding everything that hits my palate. Um, you know, 
I had a bunch of spices around my home when I first started uh, drinking whiskey. And if if I saw something in the tasting notes, I wanted to go and find that spice and I wanted to smell it. I wanted to taste it. I wanted to cook with it. I wanted to, I wanted to be that person that could take a, a sip of whiskey and pull out 30 tasting notes and maybe tell what barrel it was maturated in without reading it on the bottle. Uh, so to me, whiskey is all about wrapping my mind around something and using that experience to, to maybe get away that mental, um, that brief mental escape uh, is pouring myself into the complex notes of the whiskey, deciphering them, dissecting them, figuring them all out more over than getting the, the buzz from it. Uh, so I think that's probably why I've, I've gone to whiskey. It's something that takes years and years to make. It takes a lot of science. It takes a lot of preparation. You know, the people, the master distillers that blend these things together are, are amazing men uh, and women when it comes to to tasting and blending and combining all of this stuff to make you know absolutely delicious expressions uh, and that's that's what really draws me to to whiskey good whiskeys at that yeah okay so this is a great entryway into you because the way that you just talked about whiskey is the way that I hear you talk about things like leather products and knife designs so here's a question for you uh, whiskey is a big passion. It gets a lot of your energy. What other major passions do you have in your life? Oh, well, that's probably the one, one of the big curses with me is that I would say that I'm, I'm very passionate about a great many things. You know, the, uh, every aspect of my business I'm, I'm passionate about, whether it's, uh, inspecting, commercial and residential structures and learning everything that I can about all the new building techniques and building materials and fasteners and um, the mathematics that go behind sheer strength and structural rigidity and weight bearing um, measures uh, from, from doing that, which would be my primary work to all of my secondary projects like real estate photography, product photography, leather, handkerchiefs, beard balm, honeybees. Um, I really just love to, to pursue knowledge. Um, so once I, I get close to mastering something, I move on to a, another passion and I try to master that. But I would, I would say that my primary ones are, um, I I've planted a, an orchard, uh, this year. So I really want to get into, um, kind of the, the husbandry of, of, uh, fruit trees and, grapevines and raspberries and blackberries and meld that into my, my apiary, my bee colonies and honey. Uh, so my big passion right now is micro farming, all of those things, uh, leather handkerchiefs and, and growing the provisions company. Um, at this time, I'd say that those are the things that take up the primary aspects of my, um, my mental space. Okay. So here's the list that I have. Okay, and these are not going to be in order. But you decide to start sewing hanks. You obsess over getting the stitching perfect. And then instead of buying a cheap-ass sewing machine, you go and you buy like a $5,000 rig. And in yeah. a working rig, not like a, just a show rig, a working rig. And you put it to use sewing better and better hanks. Then you, you decide to, to keep some bees. You start a hive. And you harvest the honey and you take some royal jelly from it. And people keep adding hives to it and you keep adding hives. And then you start making products like beard oil and candles. And, you know, you're, you have all this royal jelly sitting around. And now you're what, like the 
one of the top one or two um, beekeepers in your region. Uh, hang on, let me see, let me see the other one I got. Uh, oh, yeah, you're a knife fan, and you you bring in tons of incredible pieces, and you you review them, and you look at them, and you talk behind the scenes. I've gotten to hear so many of your behind the scenes notes on different designs and makers, and then you design your own knife, and it gets picked up uh, by Rayot, and you know it. Now it's this knife. It's generating. I don't know. I think a whole lot of buzz behind the scenes because it's pretty incredible. Mm. Uh, whiskey, get involved in whiskey, you get to where you can learn all the tasting notes, you start doing leather work, and you put out, I don't know, one of the cooler coin design wallets that everybody's now copying, I think is just a brilliant design. So the pattern that I'm seeing is, you go in for a penny, and you become a mind on fire, and you end up way more than a pound in there, right? Some people are a mile wide and an inch deep, and it feels like you are uh, like M-shaped, or you know t-shaped you can go wide and then you can go deep on just about any topic have i nailed that is that right oh what did i miss completely completely nailed it i always joke with my wife that i'm not the the test the waters with my toe person i'm the i'm the person that dives in head first and sometimes i hit the the deep waters. sometimes i hit the rock on the bottom but i'm i'm always i'm always head first and gung-ho into into every interest that i get and how do you do this? So, so my experience of you is that you are up early. You know, what time does your day start? Like, let's do this real quick. What, what time do you start your day generally? Oh, right now, uh, I've been, I've been getting a little bit of extra sleep. So, um, six, six thirty most of the time, uh, I would say, uh, right around there. And then I stay up until one, one thirty, sometimes two o'clock, um, and go to bed. So typically like a, a four or five hour, um, night sleep. Okay. So you sleep for four or five hours. You're up at six thirty. your first company, um, home inspection. You, how many of those jobs might you take a day? Uh, typically two to three inspections. Um, most, most every day of the week. Okay. And how long is your average report that comes from a home inspection? How many pieces um, of paper are we talking about? Average, we're looking at anywhere from from probably 60 to 80 up to about 120, 150 would be an average report for like a, a small single family residential home. Uh, but okay. They can, okay, so they tell can me grow, about this week, Chris. <laughs> they can grow exponentially. How many pages larger. did you type this week? Uh, so <laughs> I actually just pulled up my... Um, my inspection logs from, from this week. Cause I was interested to see how many pages that I had produced, uh, overall. So for the entire week, um, of inspections and it was right around 7,200 pages. Yeah. yeah 7,200 pages. I happen to know the behind the scenes story there. 7,200 pages. Okay. So you go to your between 89 and 70, 7,200 pages job for the first three quarters of the day. And then you come home sometime afternoon and you have a, you have a wife, you have a son, and then you also have um, your other businesses. How much time a week do you spend working on the farm, working on one of your businesses, selling Hank, selling leather goods? What does that um, look like? I, I would say that my primary, my primary business is probably about anywhere from 80 to 95 hours a week on its, on its own. Um, I make sure to spend the time with my, with my wife and son every day. So we make sure to, to sit down at the dinner table. We eat together. Um, 
as much as humanly possible. And every now and again, I have days where um, I've scheduled so much or the inspections are so large where I might not be able to to make it home, unfortunately. Uh, but for the most part, I, I cook for my wife and uh, son most every day of the week. Uh, we sit down, we eat dinner, we play. Uh, and then when he goes to bed at about 7 p.m., that's when I, I hit office time. And from about 7 p.m. until 1 one thirty, two a.m. in the morning. That's when I'm doing my my inspection reports from that day. So I'm compiling the hundreds of photos, the the hundreds of of points uh, that I found in those inspections. I'm notating and you know putting circles and arrows on all of the primary items. Um, but yeah, anywhere from eighty to ninety five hours for my primary business, and then everything else that I do uh, with handkerchiefs and leather and beard bombs and. Uh, honey and wax and all of that stuff that's above uh, above and beyond that hey so i love that so so who in your life taught you to work that hard because i will say that i don't know 90 95 percent of the people listening to this i mean i work my tail off and you know you leave me by <laughs> so where did you learn that where did you pick that up um well i was very very fortunate to have a hardworking entrepreneurial uh, grandfather. Uh, so when I was born, uh, my grandfather uh, was operating a open pit coal mining company. So we had, uh, I think, about 116 to 120 employees. We oper- He operated the mine 24 hours a day. So there were two shifts, day shift, night shift, that ran. Um, they both ran 10-hour shifts, and then there was four hours of downtime for equipments to be serviced and everything. Uh, but all of my, my childhood, my grandfather operated that, that coal company and he, you know, gone all day, he would be home for dinner and then he'd go back to the the site to make sure that everything was, was going right. And then he would come home and he would go to sleep for a few hours and then he would wake up and he would go and check all of the, uh, the pumps in the pits. Cause anytime that you dig a hole that deep in the ground, you're going to get, you know, aquifers and springs and things like that, that are going to pour water into the pit. So he was just like me. He always had a, a trust problem when it came to other people. So he would always be the one that would wake up two or three times a night, drive to whatever pit we were mining. And he would, you know, make sure that the pumps were running, make sure that they were full of fuel, make sure that there was backup fuel go around and tell all the foremen what was going on so that everybody was in the know. And then he'd come home and go back to sleep for a few hours, go back out. Uh, So very, very hardworking man. And I think the whole time that I lived um, with them, so later on in my childhood when they they kind of took over the the guardianship of me, my, my grandfather woke me up very, very early in the morning to get farm work done because not only did we have the the coal mine but we also had um we boarded horses for a long time we had cattle uh, we did corn for a while um there was a lot of different kind of farm things that we did we put up hay uh, so he'd wake me up early in the mornings before school and i would go and tend to the you know muck the stalls and feed the horses and you know maybe get stuff ready for for hay when i was coming home from school so typically like four thirty five a.m was was wake up time uh, when I, when I lived with him. Uh, and that's all he ever did was, was work. So naturally being around him, that's, that's the primary thing that I got to do as well was work. Okay. And, and so, and your grandfather, uh, in my head now, he's like Clint Eastwood 
like old Clint Eastwood in the movies who's sitting on the porch and, and <laughs> is always just right at, you know, his fun meters pegged. Yeah. Is that what your grandfather was like? Um, I actually, he, he's almost the spitting image of, of John Wayne. And I, I think that I've always had a, and had an affinity towards John Wayne uh, for that reason. You know, their their facial expressions. You know, you see John Wayne in every movie, and he's not much for the smile. He's he's always got a little bit of a grimace uh, on his face. My grandfather always looked. Yards there. Yep, my grandfather always looked particularly mean because he only had um, vision in one eye. Uh, he had he had lost vision in one uh, by getting a metal shard in it, and then when they removed it, they they damaged all of his. Uh, his optical nerve or something. And so it was like all fogged over and kind of, kind of scary looking, you know? So he was, he was one of those people that really commanded, um, respect in a room, six foot four, big wide shouldered guy, very strong, uh, with a real mean look on his face all the time. Uh, so yeah, John Wayne is, is the embodiment of him. Okay, so in my experience, guys like that, uh, they live by a code. Did your grandfather have a code? Did he have a like cement in his soul that just guided him through everything he did? Oh, if for so, sure. What was it? Yeah, um, Grandpa was always a very chivalrous um, and real good gentleman. Very professional in in every endeavor until somebody crossed him. Um, so he always took wonderful care of my my grandmother she would say that she wanted to to do something even on a minor scale and he would just so the whole boarding horses is she she had mentioned to him at one point in time that that she'd really like to have a horse and learn how to you know take care of horses and maybe show horses and do that kind of thing and within a few weeks he had uh, our barn was 40 feet wide by 120 feet long and he replanted he uh, disked up all of our hay fields and he planted these really special high protein alfalfa mixes um, which became really renowned in our area for for show horses and and racing horses Uh, but basically she said that she wanted to do something on a minor scale and he invested everything that he could possibly into it and every time that she ever said something like that he you know she said jump and he jumped as high as he could as much as he could kind of thing. So always took really good care of my grandmother, always took really good care of his, his employees. So, you know, everybody that I remember ever being hurt on the job, they didn't have to worry about, you know, workers compensation claim. Like he made sure that they were, they were taken care of, that they got work if they couldn't come back to work uh, with our company, you know, if something physically kept them from, from doing that, he just tried to do right by everybody. And he always had a, a moral compass on where he, where he thought things should be, how things should go. He always invested way more money than he ever should have into reclaiming. So when we got done mining a project, it was always way better off when we left it than when we got there. He would, he would put wetlands in, he would plant the best hay that he could. He would plant more trees than he was ever required to by the division of natural resources you know, it, it really turned into more of a paradise than the, the mucky field that it was prior uh, to that. Um, but with all of that, he was still uh, one of those people, like I said, if you ever crossed him, you, you kind of got fire and brimstone. You know, it, it was a no-holds-barred kind of aggression where 
he gave you every chance to to do what was right. And if you didn't do what was right, he was going to end your job, end your company, end your reputation kind of thing. Okay, so your grandfather's code. So far I've heard he was a fierce competitor. He mm-hmm. believed passionately in taking care of the people around him and under under his care. He would take things on, go you know, go a mile deep in them and learn to do them as well as anybody around them. Might take everything to the highest level. For sure. I also heard let people know exactly where they stand. Mm-hmm. And say and at that point, okay, that's a good code so far. So what of his code did you pick up? What does your code look like? Um, I would say that I've leave you with. I've really tried to be as much of the man that my grandfather was as as humanly possible. So, um, I I treat my wife as as good as I possibly can. Any anything that she asks me to do, I I try my hardest to do it. I try to make her life as easy as possible. You know, I do I do all the grocery shopping. I do almost all the cooking. Uh, and then I also do my full-time job and as much of the yard work as possible. Um, you know, I try to, to take on as much as I can to make her life as easy as I can and make sure that my, my wife and my son always know that they have my affection and my, my love and that I'm happy and, um, really honored to, to have them and respect them. And I, I know that I took that from my from my grandfather, his admiration for my grandmother, his admiration for myself, uh, that's mirrored. Uh, and in the only way that I've, I've changed it is my grandfather wasn't an affectionate man. Um, so he wasn't much for, for physical attention. He wasn't much for, you know, kind of building you up. You just kind of got a head nod most of the time. And as, as long as he wasn't upset, you knew that he was happy and content, uh, where I try to be as outward about my affections. Uh, as possible. Um, I, you know, that's so interesting real quick that you say that because as guys, we really, really suck about talking about this. So <laughs> rarely ever anymore. I feel like do men like take other men and say, Hey, look, here, here's how you do this. I mean, we get it from our fathers to some extent, you know, and, and from male figures around, but actually we, we don't do it very well. And yeah we don't talk about the affection side at all either, but then you know, you have a son or you have a daughter and realize, Hey, I have to bring more to this thing. So, so th- I mean, this guy, it sounds like he gave you all of the work, all of the piss and vinegar, all of the go conquer the world cared about you very deeply. Um, and yet you are not just, you're not, a, you have a, have a son, a son and you're with him. Where did that come from? Uh, you actually cut out there for a second. Can you repeat that last that last line in your question? Yeah. So, so where did that come from? You have this, you know, you you have you have this work ethic. You have this grandfather, and he he gave you all these amazing things. So he taught you how to work hard, and but yet you have a young son, and you have a wife, and you are a very human person. Known you to be. Where did that come from? Where did you get that? Um. I, I think that with with my upbringing, you know, the, the life that I had with my parents and then the life that I had with my grandparents, I, I saw a lot of stark comparisons between the way that my father treated my mother, the way my father treated me, the way my grandfather treated my grandmother, and the way my grandfather treated me. And, you know, trying to kind of decipher, you know, like you said, men aren't very good at telling other men 
how to be. So my grandfather kind of ruled by example. My father showed me everything that I shouldn't do. And then I kind of had to fill in the the spaces in between that. So I really look at like old time chivalry where you, you know, the, the lady is crying, you give her the handkerchief and you, you soothe and mend. Um, I took the sternness from my grandfather and the, the admiration that you could see that he had, but didn't express. And I've just tried to, to take the best of that and implement a little bit more of, of what I really think should be there. So that, um, that little bit of physicality, that little bit of, of verbal admiration and respect, that kind of uplifting attitude where it's, you know, not just a stern face all the time. Um, that's that's rooted and foundational in stone, but it's also that little bit of uh, energizer battery that can give you give somebody that you love just that extra little bit of boost. Uh, so it, it it's really just trying to take the best of my grandfather, my mentor, um, and add a little twist to it that I think would have been beneficial. Something that maybe I would have wanted a little bit more from him. Something that maybe even my grandmother would have wanted a little bit more from him. Yeah, so my understanding of your story is that it unfolds in three acts. And the way, um, the way, how do I say this? What I look for in that story is I see a story of three men. Your father and the time that you spent with him. Your grandfather and the impression that he made on you. And then kind of the man that you became and what you, you chose to do with your life after. I would love to go to the first act. Okay. So, so open the story for me. Um, you're living in a, in a house. I don't know if you want to say the state you're from or anything like that, but you're mm-hmm. tell me about the natural world around you and tell you about the environment that you were a kid in. Um, well, the, the very, very early time of my childhood. So I've, I've always been in Ohio. Um, I've lived for, for minor spats in, in other places, other countries and other States. Um, but the predominance of my life has been in Southeastern Ohio and, you know, very early on in my life, um, you know, life was, life was pretty decent. I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents every weekend, most of the summer. Um, lots of, lots of good times with them. I traveled a lot with my, with my grandparents. My, my father was a relatively decent man early on in my, my life. I've never really gotten on along with my, with my mother. My mother has always been quite bitter, resentful, um, you know, really a lot of negative emotion from, from her. Uh, but early on in life, my, my father and I got along relatively decently. Um, didn't do a whole lot of stuff together. He worked as a heavy equipment operator, uh, for the operators union. And, uh, typically when he was around at home, I was off playing on, on the farm, which my, uh, my grandfather owned, a 350 acre farm, which he allowed my parents to live on. <clears throat> so typically I was running around the farm for long, long, long periods of time. Um, life kind of degraded as my single digit years, uh, started to progress. So I believe when I was between about six and eight years old, um, right about six, seven, eight, my dad really started going more and more into drugs and alcohol. So he'd always been, uh, a little bit 
of a drug user uh, and a little bit of an alcohol user. But as that age progressed, he really dove hard into, you know, full on alcoholism, pretty major drug use. Uh, my mother did a lot of the, the same. And as my sixth year turned into my seventh year, it, it progressed. Life got a good, good bit worse from seven to eight. Life got a lot worse. Uh, and then when I was right about eight and a half, my younger brother was born. And it seemed like right around the time that my younger brother was born, life went from relatively unhappy to very, very unhappy. Uh, and then I only had a few more years left with my, with my parents um, before I can't remember what it was, if it was 10 or 11. Um, but that's when my, that's when my grandparents took me, uh, took guardianship of me. So that, that's kind of like a broad spectrum of what the, the first act, uh, would look like. Yeah. So you're, you're in Ohio, you're on a farm, you're running around on the farm all day long. There's some tension in the house. You're a kid, you're exploring and then it starts getting worse and it gets worse to the point where you transition to living with your grandfather. Yeah. So if you can give me a story or two about how you, about how that, how those early years really played out for you. So what was it like at school? What were you doing? What were your big aha moments? Um, school life was, was pretty rough. Uh, in my early years, prior to to moving in with my grandparents, um, my parents weren't uh, big big um, supporters of of hygiene. So a lot of times I went to school and I wasn't I wasn't properly bathed. I wasn't um, my clothes weren't always the the cleanest. Um, for for a lot of years, I had had nighttime issues that would aid to um, kind of a a non pleasant smell during the, the daytime. So I got made fun of a lot at school, bullied a lot on the school bus. Um, and it's so hard to imagine people bullying you now, knowing what I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. With me being a, a six foot tall, 240 pound uh, guy with big bear hands um, and a kind of a foul attitude when called upon, not, not many people pick on me um, anymore. Um, but that, that was, that was how a lot of school was, um, you know, a couple times a week I was, I was having to be taken to the principal at the, at the grade school to meet with middle schoolers and high schoolers where they had been brought from their school over to my school so that we could all talk to the principal and I'd have a, I'd have a bloody nose or I'd have, um, I'd have a, a burn on my arm where they gave me like a really intense Indian burn or bruises or, you know, typical kind of big kid picking on little kid stuff. Uh, one of the ones that I remember um, getting caught on a couple of times is uh, I, I think they phrased it like, Hey, if you're, if your hand's bigger than your face, you, you have cancer. And I was like, that's not real. Uh, for that one. And you know, they're like, no, it's a, it's a proven fact. If you're, if your hand's bigger than your face, you have cancer and you, you need to catch it early. And then, you know, you put your hand over your face and then you get cracked in the nose. And your eyes are watering, and your nose is bleeding, and you're you're crying and wondering why you were so stupid to get get caught in that. Uh, but similar kind of things, you know that was that was a lot of my childhood prior to 
prior to, prior to being taken over by my my grandparents. You know, I didn't got made fun of and had a lot of kind of uh, insecurities about the way that I looked, the way that I you know, smelled. Um, we had even if I did shower at home, we had um, an old well on the property that had a lot of sulfur in it. You know, naturally the property was coal mined previously in the well. Um, the well was never redug, was never redrilled. So there was a lot of kind of coal dust. There was a lot of manganese, uh, in the well. And when the, when the water would come out, it kind of had like this orangish tint. So if you had a, had a white shirt that went through the washing machine, it would come out with like that burnt orange, rusty color. Um, and then the water that came out of the, the system kind of had a foul smell to it as well. So if anybody can imagine a, a rotten egg or the, the smell of a match after it's first been, um, been scratched, that was very similar to the smell that came out of the, the shower head when you took a shower at home. So, you know, I, I didn't shower a whole lot because my parents never forced you to. And as a very, very small kid, you know, most, most boys, I would say uh, that haven't been taught better or, you know, they're, going to go out and roll around in the dirt and walk in the mud on the farm yeah, and you know, in the pocket. Rin, rinse off with a garden hose and, and move on. And I would say that that was very much so me. And I, I got a lot of ridicule for that in school. So what did you do back then to process things? Were you super into music? You know, did, um, you, did you go explore the world? You had like a bike path that you were always on. What, what was your thing? Well, uh, there, there was definitely a lot of stuff that I used to, to cope. Uh, let's start with the good, the good things that I used to cope. And the, the best thing, um, and I, I'm still very thankful for aspects of my childhood for this today, is my love of reading. So very early on, and especially as things started to, to progress and get worse and worse at home, um, I, I dove headlong into every book that I could get my hands on. Um, and any story that wasn't mine was, was something of, of intrigue. So Goosebumps books were, were big when I was, you know, very, very small at a certain age, I picked up the, the Harry Potter books. I also really, really loved books that were probably beyond my, beyond my age. So I think, I think I was eight or nine when I picked up um, a a very adult book uh, by an author called Gene M. All, uh, and it's called The Clan of the Cave Bear, and it's a it's a multi part book where she researched cave person culture. So you know she's going back through the the history of. Um, Homo erectus and the cave people and understanding aspects of their culture. And then she wrote this novel about it, this, this fiction that kind of portrayed this, this life of a, of a, of a, a group of people. I'm going too much into the book and not, not focusing on the story. Um, but that, that book really, really gripped me because it was, it was something that intrigued my mind. There were words that I didn't understand. And when I'd go to school, I'd, you know, have, have, uh, like free periods and library time. Uh, and I would go to the dictionary and I would look up all these words that I, that I didn't understand all of these kind of like scientific words and big words. And that, that gave me something to, to dive into video games were also a thing that would help me to, to get a reprieve from, 
from my day-to-day life, but books were the, the primary good thing because a lot of times my parents kind of trying to take the things that I liked away, they had a hard time taking away books because I could stash them all over the place, but they could very easily take the the television cables off of the, the game system. Um, outside of that, I, I walked around the farm a lot, and I was given a, a BB gun at a very young age. I was given a shotgun at a very young age. I was given a, a twenty two long rifle at a very, very young age, um, way younger than you know, I would say that any kid would have gotten them uh, nowadays. Uh, but I, I'd walk all over the farm and I would, you know, shoot tree branches that were, were dead and hanging by the water. And I would shoot at dragonflies sitting on lily pads at the lake. Uh, so I went through a lot of, a lot of BBs and, and 22 shells. Um, <clears throat> my, my grandfather found a, a friend of his uh, that knew how to, to trap and, in the in the fall and the winter when trapping season came in, I would I'd put on my chest waders and I would go with him and learn how to how to trap. So I'd say that that's a relatively good thing that I used to to cope. Uh, and then kind of going into the the darker side of it, um, there there were some times where you know the book didn't do it, the video games didn't do it. There was nowhere to go, there was nowhere to be. Um, and for, for a couple of years, uh, I became a cutter. I'd cut myself and, mm. you know, kind of realized some of a little bit of a physical pain to, to match the mental anguish, I think. And that, that probably lasted from about, from about nine years old until my, my grandparents had, had taken guardianship to, of me, which then it just, it dissolved and, and went away. But for for a couple years there, I did did do some like self inflicted harm uh, as well. And so, so let's talk about something that guys never talk about here. So, you know, on the one side, you have all of this success and this hard work and this beautiful family and this story about a grandfather who, you know, like John Wayne, could teach you how to be a man. And then at the very beginning, in the first act of the story, we have kid who's running around his farm, classic frog in the pocket, um, you know, shooting stuff, wandering around, learning about the natural world, you know, sulfur in the well, so you, so you get picked on at school. And what guys never talk about is when it, it flips and it starts to get real, real hard. You know, we never talk about the bottom. We'll share our story of being on the way up and how great that was. And, you know, boy, we did all the right things. We never talk about what the uh, what the scene of the crime looks like. Mm-hmm. So, so you have your coping mechanisms, and what did you have to overcome? Um, I I would say that the 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 biggest obstacles for me as as a child of that age, you know, like I said, it especially as as time progressed in my in my young life, chapter one with my <coughs> with my mother and father, um, my father had gotten really big into drugs and alcohol, and you know he would come home from work, and within forty five minutes he was he was well into being high and intoxicated. And when my father was sober, he was pretty passive, um, not not aggressive hardly at all. But when he became 
drunk or drugged up, he became very, very aggressive, both verbally, mentally, and and physically. So when when my father's alcoholism and drug use kind of hit a fever pitch, um, verbal abuse was was something that happened every single day. Physical abuse was something that happened a fair amount of the time in varying degrees, you know, anything from from a backhand across the face, you know, for for talking when I wasn't supposed to, to, you know, full-on closed fist um, beatings at, at times. So right about the time that the that the cutting started was also right about the time when the the more aggressive physical problems started with my with my father. So there you know anybody that's seen a a picture of me or you know maybe watched me on on one of my YouTube reviews or on Jake's podcast a few few days ago um you'll notice that my that the front of my upper lip is is messed up into one side and my nose is is crooked in a couple of different spots um i've got a lot of scars on my on my head and some on my face and on my arms and on my hands from from some of those very early um aggressive spikes that my that my father had and i i guess you know when i'm actually thinking about it that the cutting might have had you know something to do with a, um, a mental analysis of the of the the problems that were happening but also maybe i made up a lot of excuses for for what happened to me you know when when i'd be hit in the face and my eye would get blackened or my nose would get broke or my ears would swell shut or my eyes would swell shut or you know i'd have knots on my head or you know something from from those things that happened I, I now think that you know maybe part of that cutting might have been adding to the the excuses. So I, I I hunted at a very young age. I had a dirt bike at a very young age. You know, traveling all over the farm. You know, a lot of times it was you know I wrecked my dirt bike. That's how this happened. Or you know I was climbing a tree because I had I had shot a raccoon and I needed to get it and I felt the tree branch broke and I I fell out of it. Maybe those scratches and scrapes or the big scabs on my arms would. Uh, or legs or my feet would would kind of lend itself to that story and make that story more believable. But again, right before right before my grandparents really came into into that realm and understood, you know, a lot of what was happening hit their their breaking point. There were a lot of really aggressive fights between my father and I. And again, I say fights loosely because as a uh, an eight to 10, eight to 11 year old, you're not going to do much against a, a six foot two, 195 pound man. Um, but that, that would be the reason. So what for goes the, through your head? Yeah. What goes through your head when you're a 10 year old boy and you live in the house with kind of a monster? I mean, do you think I'm broken? Something's wrong with me. Do you think he's broken? Something's wrong with him and I just have to survive it. Um, how, how do you think about it? What goes through your mind? I don't think that I even processed it enough to think that it was something that was out of place. You know, when, 
like I said, I didn't have many friends as a as a young kid because of my home situation. I never invited anybody home because of my hygiene. Not a lot of people at school really really clung to me, so I didn't have a lot of access to outside of going to my grandparents on the weekends and experiencing a good life with that. When you watch television shows, you know every every kid's super excited to go to to grandma and grandpa's house. So I don't know that I ever, until life got better, did I realize that that was, you know, incredibly out of place in the world. So Shit, you didn't know to me, to me, it was like, I'll make it through tonight and tomorrow morning will be better. You know, like tomorrow morning, I'll get a chance to, to heal. I'll get a chance to go back outside. I'll get a chance to go and do my thing. I'll get a chance to go to school. Um, I, I don't think that it really resonated a whole lot. There were definitely, you know, times where I was, I was tinged with malice and aggression towards my parents because, you know, not only was my father physically and verbally abusive, but my, my mother, I, t- I mentioned that earlier where she was just kind of bitter and resentful a lot of the time where he would be doing the beating, but she would be kind of egging it on. So I definitely had a little bit of aggression towards both of my parents, but almost like a Stockholm kind of syndrome thing, I still loved my parents. You know, they were still my my parents. I I still yeah, of course. I was still fed when I was home. I still had clothes to put on my back and you know, they threw threw that in my face quite often, but I don't think that I had an incredible representation of of what life was supposed to be. So if you don't know what's better, you you don't really have a a ladder to climb uh so to speak and so you go ahead so you taught yourself to hope then is what it sounds like like it, to me what i heard is well yeah i ended up being pretty resilient in all of this but it was because i i trained myself you know indirectly to think about how tomorrow i get another swing at this tree yeah i mean it seems like it was hope yeah, I would say I would say the root of of all humanity overcoming anything is is hope. You know, that's you know, we you read it in books, you watch it in movies where, you know, someone will say that one liner where as long as we have hope, we can we can make it through this. And I think, you know, not realizing it as a child that that that's what it that's that that's what it was or that was a coping mechanism or that was a a ladder that i was climbing you know every every next day was a reset switch so yes i got i got beaten on monday night and you know i i stood in the living room bruised and bleeding and then got berated verbally but then i would go to sleep and I would wake up the next day and yeah, I'd be sore, but the day was new. I could go through that day and maybe that night would be, maybe that night would be better. And maybe, maybe my father would, would be drunk, but he wouldn't be aggressive. You know, maybe we would have a a bonfire at the lake and we'd have a chance to, to have fun. Maybe I'd go frog gigging that night. Um, you know, it's, 
I always tell my my wife, you know, I, I liken myself to a duck because their waterproof feathers just kind of lets water roll off of their back. And that's something that I pride myself on as an adult. You know, if, if, if a bad day happens today, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and it's going to be over. Let's start it anew. You know, any, any kind of, um, I, I would say fight, but my wife and I, we, we don't really fight. But we'll have kind of miscommunications where one or the other of us will feel off-put. In, in some way, shape, or form. And I'll wake up the next morning and, you know, yesterday was yesterday and let's move on. Let's, you know, we'll, we'll fix the things that, that happened and we'll, we'll kind of continue on. And my wife will still be real sorrowful that, you know, things happen and really apologetic and, you know, like still kind of holding on to it the, the following day, whereas I'm, I'm ready to, to kind of get moved on from that. And I would say that that's probably. You know, that, that's exactly how I've come to know you, by the way is yeah. no matter no matter how many punches you take against the ropes, the bell starts the next round, and you're just there, and yep. you're in it. It's, it's time to forget the last round, and it's time to, to move on to, to the next one. And, you know, it, there, there are probably good things and bad things in that, you know, like some things from the prior day may not get resolved, but I also don't, I don't ruin a week of my life because one thing happened on Monday, my Friday isn't bad. My Saturday or Sunday isn't bad. If something bad happens on Monday, Tuesday, I'm moved on. You know, I'm I'm having a good day for for spite of the of the previous day. And I think in a lot of a lot of cases it really lends itself to having a happier life and that difficult difficulty that I had in my childhood probably gave me that ability to to let the things just roll off my shoulders and, and move on. So maybe, maybe I don't bring, um, if I have a bad inspection, you know, which I did this, this past week, a pretty rough inspection. I typically don't bring that home to then treat my son worse because my inspection was bad. You know, like I've still got my, I've still got my smile on my face. I've still got my open arms for the, for a hug when I get home. You know, um, I think there was a there was a cartoon that I remember in a newspaper once where a uh, it was a plumber and he had planted a tree outside, right outside of his front door, right beside the sidewalk. And every year that tree grew, and every year he would get out of his he would get out of his work truck, and he would stand in front of that tree and he would close his eyes. And as that cartoon progressed, he would close his eyes and he would metaphorically hang every trouble that he had from his work day. You know, it's like, here's my work belt full of all the vulgarities that some client said to me. Here's my backpack of everything that didn't go right with my day. Here's my keys to the truck of shame, you know, whatever it might have been. And I don't remember exactly what the, the cartoon said, but he, he metaphorically hung all of his daily problems on, on that. And then the final frame of that cartoon showed him opening up the door with a smile on his face and a gleam in his eyes as his two sons and his wife came to the door to meet him. And, you know, that's, that's something very, very difficult to do. And sometimes it takes, you know, really gulping down some feelings to do that. But it's also, you know, a great thing for my family that I don't have to take the frustrations of a day and ruin my, my life with them, my evening with them. Uh, and I think that 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 part of my childhood helps me to more effectively do that. 
you know, segment. This is my work day. The problems that happen in my work day are there. This is my evening home with my wife and son. This is, this is the happiest time of my day. This is where I, I get that legitimate smile, not a fake smile, a legitimate smile on my face. I get that legitimate gleam in my eye. Um, and I can, I can enjoy that segmented and separated away from anything that would have happened bad. And then the next morning when I wake up, I remember everything good from the previous day. I forget all the bad and I move, move on. See that. Okay. So here's what I love about that. Is that it, it's a, one of the oldest practices and people write books on this stuff and yet we're still so bad at it. Right. I mean, Christians will talk about prayer and giving things up to God. The Buddhists will talk about emptying your mind and just being completely present with where you are. But that ability to take this acute feeling that you have and not to deny it, not to stuff it somewhere where it's not going to come out, but just to let go of it. It's like letting go of a balloon, right? And it floats off and it allows you to be there. So this skill for you, okay, here's, here's my understanding of the story. Fill me in where I'm wrong. Act one ends and act two begins with a kid walking down a 13 mile stretch of road. Mm-hmm. And there's the, cr- there's the crunch of the gravel under your feet. And it is, it is a rural place. There's not a lot of people around. There's not a lot of cars going by. It's a kid walking on a 13 mile stretch of road. This was, this was the turning point. Mm-hmm. Tell me what happened right before it and tell me what happened right after it. So the big, big turning point from chapter one to chapter two uh, was, was one of the, the biggest physical altercations with my father. So because of his drug use and alcohol use, it was very common for him <clears throat> or him and my mother to, to misplace drugs, to misplace money, to misplace alcohol, you know, to misplace something. And very early on in my childhood, I did have a, a proclivity for, for theft. Um, you know, my father was somebody that stole something from every place that he worked, including when he worked for my, my grandfather and, you know, any child kind of, even though my life at home wasn't the greatest with my parents, I still looked up for them or looked up to them. And, you know, kind of mirrored things that they did. So very early on in life, I'd stolen a few things, been um, very heftily uh, reprimanded from that physically and verbally, uh, and and learned that that was something not to do. You know, probably by the time that I was six, you know, five or six, that had, that had stopped. But and then as their drug and alcohol use got worse and worse, they would misplace stuff. And the first person that would get blamed was, of course, the first, you know, the person that had in the past stolen things. So I got blamed for that kind of stuff a lot. And, you know, right before that long walk happened, my my parents had misplaced some some drugs, blamed me for it, and my father proceeded to to very, um, very aggressively attack me. Closed fist, throwing around, kicking when I was on the floor. Um, that particular time, I, I remember 
And another unfortunate part about me is I have a pretty near to eidetic memory. I remember a great many things. And I can remember almost every every impact before losing consciousness the first time. I can remember the hits in the face and the kicks in the ribs. And I can remember my dad drunkenly falling against a door, uh, which was, it was a hollow core door. And that, that door splintered and he got a big gash on his arm and there was, you know, blood all over him and blood all over me and blood all over the house. And eventually I, I lost consciousness for some reason or another. And then when I, when I started to come back to, he was still there. He was still going about his, his thing. And he eventually, you know, wore down and things kept progressing. Things kept progressing to a point where he, I'm standing in the middle of the living room and he's sitting on the couch kind of getting his, his breath back. And he told me to go up to my room and pack a duffel bag and to get, get the F out of his house. And that's, you know, that's exactly what I did. So I, I went upstairs and I had a Marlboro duffel bag and I packed my, packed my favorite clothes and I packed a few books and I packed my favorite things into that, that duffel bag and got it all zipped up and everything. Walked down the stairs. This would have been like 10 or 11. Yeah. Okay. Um, walked down the stairs and I had to walk through the, walk through the living room to get through the dining room, which is where the majority of that, that attack had happened and then through the kitchen to the door. So I, I walked down the stairs and I can remember just thinking, you know, like I have all my stuff packed and I know I'm going to get to the living room. I'm going to get to that living room and he's going to have changed his mind. And, you know, maybe I'll, maybe a new fight will start, you know, maybe he's caught his breath and, you know, the beating will happen again. You know, I, I didn't really know what was going to happen, but it didn't. You know, I, I made it through the living room. I made it through the dining room, made it through the kitchen, made it out the back door, walked down the the front yard to the main road right in front of our house. And then right at the front of our house, there was an S turn and a railroad track that went through it. So I knew that if I followed that railroad track, that that was the, the quickest route to grandma and grandpa's house. So I started on that walk, uh, which was about 11 or so miles um, started walking down the tracks. I've got my big duffel bag on. I've lost consciousness a couple of times. I'm my ears, my right ear swollen shut. My left eye swollen shut. My nose is broke. I've got a couple of gashes on my head. I've got bruises on my rib cage. You know, I'm, I'm not in the best of shape, you know, and I'm a small kid and I'm carrying a big duffel bag. Uh, but I, I made the walk, got to my, my grandparents' house, and it's dark outside, um, and then kind of went through this whole whole scenario with, you know, informing my grandfather as to what happened and, you know, kind of getting all looked over, eventually ended up at the, at the doctor to find out that I had four cracked ribs and fractured eye socket and a broken nose and a concussion and um, tissue damage in my ears. Uh, but that, that was the, the terrible scenario that happened. The, the walk to, to my grandparents' house. And then that was the breaking point for my grandparents where they were like, this, this can't happen anymore. And, 
from that moment forward, I lived with them until until I was I think seventeen and a half when uh, when I moved out and kind of did things on my own for a little while. So Act Two starts, mm-hmm. and you have just come out of what I I don't know I would say most people would say is a complete hellhole. Oh yeah, you've got this aggressive kind of monstrous guy. You know he's he's lovely when he's sober and he's scary as hell when he's not. Yeah, and Jekyll you and Hyde. crunch down thirteen miles. Yeah, Jekyll and Hyde, and you crunch down thirteen miles of gravel road, and this other man comes and puts his arm around you, mm. and your grandfather, what he he just he welcomes you into his family, and, and he he teaches you how to be like he was. I mean, what did you do with him? How did your life change? What well, life like after that pretty immediately you know like i said my hygiene at home wasn't wasn't anything special <clears throat> um the entire time that i was at home you know i uh <laughs> you know you would think that that a lot of the things that happened with my father would be the difficult thing to to talk about but probably the thing that i'm most reserved at at mentioning was that the whole time that i was with my parents that I was living with my mom and dad was that I was a bedwetter <laughs> and it, I kind of chuckle at it because it's, it's funny to me verbalizing all of this stuff, you know, the aggression of my father and the problems that he had. And out of everything, the thing that I don't want people to know the most is that I was a bedwetter when I was, when I was living with them. So up until 10 or 11 years old, I was a bedwetter. Um, so when my grandfather took me in, First thing was got me cleaned up, got fresh clothes. So I, I'm in clean clothes. I'm, um, they had wonderful f- fresh spring water at my grandmother, grandmother and grandfather's house. Just delicious water, no smell, beautiful home. What a um, metaphor. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all cleaned up. My parents never made me cut my hair. So my hair's my hair's long, it's it's ratty, it's tattered, it's split ends. So I'm I'm all cleaned up, I'm in new clothes. First place we go is the the barber shop. And uh people have commented on my hair and you know told told me about like how how Jake and my hairstyles are very very similar. But I've pretty well had this hairstyle since this day um that my grandfather took me to the barber shop and there was a sign on the wall or he's basically like, give me, give him haircut number seven. Uh, and I've joked about it. It's like, you know, give him haircut number seven from the 1920s. Uh, it's kind of, you know, just a standard kind of high and tight haircut with a, with a part and the hair combed to the side, you know, just a real classic hairstyle. And this has been something that's just really, it's like, this is my grandfather chose my look and I've really pretty well stuck with it most of my life there my hair has sometimes been a little bit longer sometimes a little bit shorter but it's always been that that hairstyle that he picked uh, but he got me cleaned up and that's when the the regimented lifestyle kind of hit a little bit more you know my, my grandfather didn't have a whole lot of rules for me and he didn't need a whole lot of rules for me because I was I was so elated to be there I was so happy with the change of life that I really felt internally like I, I didn't want to do anything that would make him less content with me. So that's when the early morning started. He he was always an early riser. So four four thirty in the morning, 
there'd be a, a knock on the bedroom door and I'd get up and get showered and get dressed and be ready for breakfast and then ready for preschool work, go to school, get everything done, uh, come home, immediately do my homework. And for a long time, my grandfather would talk to um, the the governing bodies at the school, principal or whoever it was, and he would get me on whatever bus was going to drop me off closest to whatever mine site that they were at at that point in time. So I would get on that bus, the the heckling and the the abuse and things that I got from kids at school really diminished because I started coming out of my shell. I started being more conversational. I wasn't smelly or dirty or stinky or, you know, introverted as much anymore. So I started getting friends. I started getting acquaintances. People stopped poking fun at me. Um, another funny part about the whole situation is my, my bedwetting only lasted, I, I think I only had three incidents after moving in with my grandparents. And I've always wondered if it was like, you know how a, a dog that's been abused will sometimes urinate as a, um, as a sign of kind of being subservient to the alpha. So if, if somebody that's beat them comes around, you know, some dogs pee out of excitement, some dogs pee out of, you know, a a sign that they are lesser, they're the beta. And I've, I've always kind of wondered since then, especially as I've gone into my adult life, I'm like, was, was that kind of like a subconscious thing that I'm like showing my subservience to what would have been the alpha of the pack, my father, my mother, you know, was it something in my brain primal in my brain that was causing that that to happen because almost immediately after moving in with my grandparents it it disappeared entirely um but going back my my grandfather would have me dropped off at the closest point he would pick me up off the bus uh, drive me over to the office on whatever mine site that we were doing he'd make sure that i got my homework done and then i would go to work for the rest of the evening in the mine so for a long time, I drove around a John Deere Gator. He had welded plumbing pipes to the the brake and the gas pedal, um, put a little two-by-four on the top so that my short legs could reach the, the pedals to go. And I would drive around the mine site. We would have sections that would be reclaimed, and I would drive around, and I would pick up the sticks and the stones and you know anything that wasn't supposed to be there. And then once all of that stuff was cleaned up, he would give me a, a broadcasting spreader and the 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 hay grass mixes and clover mixes that he wanted spread on that. And I would go around and I'd seed everything. And then this is where my allergies really came, came into prevalence or into view was when uh, I would spread the the hay and the straw to, to cover up all the grass seed that I had just planted. And that's when we realized that I had hay fever, Uh, very, very bad allergy to, to hay and straw. But uh, my grandfather was very, very stern, very regimented, very hardworking. So it was like, you know, put a, tear up a, a flannel shirt or a hanky. That's when I started carrying uh, handkerchiefs. You know, I'd take that handkerchief and I'd tie it around my my face like an old cowboy in the westerns that we watched tonight. Uh, and I would kind of grin and bear it through it. You know, whatever, whatever sneezing or respiratory duress that I had, just kind of work through it, get the job done. And... Very, very early on, my grandfather wanted to still instill with me the value of hard work. So when 
when I went to work after my homework was done and whenever, you know, he worked from dark to dark. So in the summertime, if, if dark is nine 30, you're at the job site until nine or nine 30. And he always told me, he goes, if I feel like you're giving me a good, honest hour of work, I'll pay you an adult man's wage. So he's like, I'll pay you the exact same that I pay any adult that works for me if I feel like you're giving me a, a solid hour's work. And he was never saying, I want you to do the same amount of work as a man. But if he could see that I was doing my utmost to get the job that he had given to me done, even if I didn't get it done, but if I tried my hardest, he would pay me that that same wage. So here I am, a 11, 12-year-old kid making 18 to $22 an hour, you know, reclaiming and saving and building a savings account and learning how to, you know, kind of manage money and manage time and, you know, manage physical exertion and um, being tired and being exhausted. You know, it jumps out to me, Bren, that some people when they hear your story, your father, they might say, well, look, there's a case where masculinity was to blame like something sour and it, 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 it turned evil and there's too much machismo and there's too much ego and there's violence and see, this is what men do. But I, I think it's interesting that what pulled you out of that was almost like a classic masculinity, right? It's the, yeah. it's the number seven haircut on the barbershop that you still wear, yep. and, a, you know, as an adult now. I, I've said it a few so times. It was, uh, being a man was on both sides, right? Yeah. So I, I've mentioned it a few times, and I really buck the whole toxic masculinity thing. And and one of the things that I typically tell people that being a man, being a a legitimate man, is being as strong as you possibly can but having the wisdom to understand that you should never need to use that strength. And that was, that would really be the embodiment of my, my grandfather. He was a very prominent businessman, very successful, did amazing things in his life. He had an immense amount of strength and pride that he could have exerted onto anything and everything that he wanted, but he never did. You know, like I said, he was very prominent and very successful, but he always drove a, a beat up Ford truck. You know, he'd buy himself a brand new truck, but then he would drive it and he would get it all dirty and he would get it all banged up. You know, it was a tool that he used to work, much like anything else. He wore grease stained dicky pants uh, and these button up, like I called them sun shirts, you know, like really thin material kind of cowboy button up shirts like you'd see on a, on a ranch in a cowboy movie. Uh, and he always had red wing boots on, but he was always covered in engine grease and coal dust and dirt. And if we went out to a restaurant in a day, he didn't like change his clothes and gussy himself up and make him look good for public. He was, he was the man that he always was period. And then you have my, my father who was a very weak man that exerted as much strength as he possibly could to prove to himself that he was a man and to possibly prove to other people that he was a man. And that's the difference between an alpha and a beta. You know, my father was very beta male. He was very weak overall, but he tried to give this persona of strength by beating a child and, and beating a woman. 
my grandfather was an alpha where he had all the strength that you could ever want as a man, but never showed it to anybody. He had the, he had the wisdom. He had the, the perseverance to never have to do it. And that's, that's the difference to me between masculinity and trouble. You know, a man can be a man. He can protect his wife. He can protect his son. He can open a door for a woman out of, out of respect. He can be everything that a man should be and then have the control and the wisdom to not do anything bad, you know, not be the bad guy. So I really think tox, toxic masculinity, when you're actually talking about that, is the beta male that's exerting strength over everybody to prove to themselves and to make others believe that they're a bigger man than they actually are. That's toxic masculinity. Not the, not the guy that gives a handkerchief to a crying woman or opens a door or does anything that he can to help his fellow man. Yeah, and so, okay, so here's what hits me so hard, Bren, is that you go from this one environment to the other. And in that other, all of a sudden, you started to crackle with electricity. You came to life. And your soul turned on, brother, right? Because over a period of what, uh, let me see, eight years, nine years, you and him, you built an empire. Yes. Yeah, our... um as I grew up, as I got older, my my job went from just doing the reclaiming to operating the equipment very quickly. Um, <clears throat> then it went from operating the equipment to being an overseer of projects. You know, so I've got <laughs> you've got somebody out there that by all um, M. Shaw and OSHA standards shouldn't even be there. You know, like a lot of times the inspector would would come and there'd be a dozer sitting out on a high wall somewhere that was running and there'd be nobody running it because I dove off the hill and was sitting in a culvert somewhere so that nobody knew I was there. Um, but you know, when I was like 15, 14, 15 years old, I was basically being a foreman in, in some aspect on some parts of the, of the site because my grandfather knew that he could depend on me to do whatever project that I had been told to do and do it the way that he had told me to do it. And he had a lot of issues with other foremans where he would tell them a job and he would tell them how to do it. And then they would look at something and be like, okay, I think I found a better way too. And then it ended up screwing up a plan. You know, one, one such situation that I can remember, um, <clears throat> we had a foreman, I think he was about 64, 65 years old. And my grandfather had told me to do a project and he had told me to, take this high wall and cut it down about 18 to 20 feet. And he wanted me to take all that limestone um, because once we got through the clay and the shale, it was a big layer of limestone that we had demoed with some dynamite. So we were to move all that limestone clear over to the opposite side of the, the property that we were mining. And we were to dump it all there in a big pile. And he told me exactly where to put that pile. One of the, the foremen came over and he decided that it made more sense to put the pile somewhere else, not knowing that my grandfather had a specific plan and that pile needed to be right there because he he had a rock crusher coming in and it was going to grind up all that limestone. We were going to use it to cap off all the haul roads. So 
I had told my crew to go and do their thing and then went to the other project that my grandfather had me wanting to do. And then that foreman came in and because of his age superseded my recommendations and had that limestone placed somewhere else where he thought it needed to be. And boy, my grandfather was fuming over that whole situation came to me because he thought that I did the wrong thing. And I of course informed him that everybody was told to do what he asked them to do. Then he found out that that foreman had changed the, <laughs> changed the orders and just ripped right into him. You know, I, I can't believe that you just used your age to go up above a 14 year old boy. He goes, that boy over there knows 10 times as much as you do. And he can follow directions a hundred times better than you can. And I, I can just, I can remember the look on the guy's face as he just kind of looked at me. That was the first experience that I had with an older person really hating me as a younger person for doing the job that I was supposed to be doing. And that was something that I was going to learn time and time again in every every enterprise that I went into um, because I was always the youngest person in a managerial role, managing people that were three times my age. But uh, as I progressed, yeah, so you learned that lesson pretty well. Yeah, and and early, yeah. So um, continued working for my grandfather. uh, But when I was fifteen and a half, I really wanted to start getting into to doing other things, building, um, building other things. So my grandfather made a corporation for me, put it in his name, but let me run it. So I ran all of the the financials, I deposited the checks, I wrote the checks, I bid the jobs, I did the jobs. Uh, he, We went to the local courthouse, and instead of me getting a learner's permit, I got a work permit for, for driving. So at 15, 15 and a half, I was basically a fully licensed driver as long as I was driving for work, which, just like now, all I ever do is work, so it was like having a full-on license. Um, bought my first pickup truck with all the money that I had made working for my grandfather and, and saving up, got ladders, got tools, and started basically a handyman company. And I would go around and do all kinds of odd jobs, and I built that company up, and I operated that uh, company all the way up until um, the injury that caused me to change fields, which would have been right about the time that I met my wife about nine, ten years ago. Um, but we... We worked the the coal company. I worked my contracting company. We started a fish farm uh, that was very, very successful. We went from not knowing anything about farming fish and just having kind of a lot of lakes on all of our all of our properties because everywhere that we dug a strip pit, typically we would we'd leave a nice big body of water. We would line the inside of the pit with um, with clay, get it to hold water plan everything up, build wetlands. You know, we really left everything better than we, we found it. Um, but because of that, we had a lot of acreage of, of water on all the properties and the leaseholds that we had. Uh, so Grandpa came up with this this great idea that he wanted to, to start farming fish and wanted to start selling those. So we built even more acres of water. Uh, so the the farm that I had originally grew up on with my, my parents, we converted that into a, a full-blown fish farm, which I've shared pictures of that in the Graw group. Um, his property there where we were living, he converted uh, 126 acres of that into water, and we started you know fish farming um, as well. And we went from not knowing anything about fish farming to being president and vice president of the Ohio Aquaculture Association for a while. Um, so really... 
you know, my grandfather was the guy that, that did the same thing. Every every time he had an interest, he dove in head first. He got everything that he needed for it. He perfected everything, made it an art form. And then a lot of times, you know, he might lose interest in it and he'd sell it off and, and move on to the next endeavor. So I've, I've definitely inherited that trait, <laughs> honest. Uh, but, yeah, we built built multiple companies. Multiple. And you were his number one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he he had two sons that he couldn't depend on. So his eldest grandson was was his next best bet. And I, I, I was a, a kindred spirit with him. I wanted to learn everything that I could. I wanted to wanted to make as much money as I could. I wanted to, to I wanted to do it all, and uh, that really that really fit with him really really well. Really melted with him. And so, okay, so you and him start this this kind of mini empire, and you build it into something special. You guys make you know more than enough money. Um, you make more than enough businesses to keep somebody happy for their entire life. You found this stuff and then you break off and you, you go to college and you study what engineering for a little while. Yep. Civil you're kind of a, like the story's completely switched here. Now you're the, the good looking successful driven, you know, 18 year old and you go off and, and you study engineering and what's life like then? Well, um, Life was very complex um, during college. So in when I'm still living with my grandparents and I finished up high school in the wintertime when, when a lot of our enterprises, so the lakes get frozen over, fish farming's not really a thing um, in the wintertime. Construction, you know, the coal company had started winding down, um, so it wasn't doing as much then. Contracting really slows down in the wintertime. So a lot of times I would take a seasonal job at Radio Shack. Uh, we had a local Radio Shack, uh, great manager named Don, really great um, second mentor to my, my grandfather. And that's where, that's where I really started to learn customer service, um, you know, that kind of sales environment. I had the hardworking aspect, so I was the guy that would stock shelves without being asked to do it. I would, you know, clean the floor without being asked to do it. I would, you know, go above and beyond to help every customer that came in and make sure that basically Don, the manager, had absolutely nothing to worry about. He could he could sit in the back and take a nap if he wanted to because he knew when I was there and working, everything was taken care of. Uh, and he always scheduled we, scheduled me to work with him. I think for that, for that as one of the reasons. Um, but I did, uh, I did a couple seasonal shifts with them. And then right about the time where I was, I was thinking about going to college, uh, the district manager asked my manager, he said, Hey, you know, we, we have a store opening up. We'd like to put a manager in it. Who would you like to, who would you like to see do it? And he, he brought me up. So here I am 17 and a half and, uh, District manager and manager take me in the back room and they say, hey, we'd like to give you a store in, in Marion, Ohio, which is about four and a half or five hours away from from where my grandparents lived. So, you know, I thought, well, that's that's driving distance away from the from the college that I was accepted to. I could commute back and forth like I could still I still planned on running my contracting company, but just, you know, kind of moving it and building a reputation in another area. So. I accepted it, um, went home, and after that shift, told told my grandmother and grandfather that I'd be 
moving out and that, you know, I got an opportunity to manage a store and, you know, it was within driving distance of, of the school, um, talked about all that. And my grandfather, you know, kind of really, really tried to talk me out of going, you know, far away to a school, really wanted me to stay home. But I, unlike his two sons, I really wanted to prove that outside of the umbrella of what he had built that I had and I had the ability to, to make money on my own, that I had the ability to build a reputation on my own because I had built a reputation with him and with, with everybody in the community with him. You know, if you, if you heard our name, you heard my grandfather's name, you heard my name, you know, people, people resonated the two of us together. So I knew that I had a reputation here, but I also felt like that reputation was because of my grandfather's prominence. So, you know, he, he offered to, he's like, how about you stay home and I'll, I'll pay for all of your college. I'll pay 100% full ride for you to go to whatever college in the area that you want to go to. And I thanked him for the opportunity and said, you know, like, no, I I really want to do something for myself. And that was the, when I said that, that was the, the first and one of the very few times that my, my grandfather shook my hand. You know, he like I said, he wasn't a, a physically affectionate person. So hugs and, and physical attention wasn't something that I really got from him all that much. Um, but I can remember, I can remember that one moment where I said, no, I want to do something for myself. I want to pay my own way. I want to build my own reputation. I want to take care of myself. So I turned down the, the full ride to college. He shook my hand and told me, you know, how proud he was of me. And I packed up all my stuff and I moved, moved four and a half, five hours away. I took, took care of my store. Um, it was a store that had previously been there, but then had been relocated. It was the bottom performing store in the district. I had multiple older guys there that quit right off the bat because I was, I was too young, um, to be smart enough to oversee them. So, you know, one of them quit day one, one of them lasted a couple days, you know, the rest of the guys that were there, I'm like, I'll, it's a commission based job. Like if you listen to the things that I say, you'll make more money than you ever have here. And within a very short amount of time, I took my store from last in the district to number two, only being beaten by the store that I came from. Um, my, my mentoring manager was the only one that, that was ever ahead of me. And that gave my manager a lot of pride and it gave my, gave me a lot of pride too, you know, that, that I was always nipping at his coattails. But, uh, I went to college full time. I paid my way through college without any loans. Um, didn't fully graduate because of, uh, circumstances with my grandfather's health. But for the entire time that I was at college, I was working a full-time managerial position at Radio Shack. I was operating my contracting company in the Marion area, doing the same exact things and building a reputation like I had it at home. Uh, and I was, you know, passing college uh, up to the point where my grandfather had given me a call and said, you know, he was very, very sick and, and wanted me to come back home. And it took absolutely zero argument. I handed in my notice at, at Radio Shack. I froze my, my classes uh, in college. I told all the clients uh, that I had current contracts with to, to do work. Like I'm, I'm going to be leaving. And within a, a few days, I didn't even fill out my full two weeks 
uh, at Radio Shack. They ended up letting me go early, and I I drove back home to to take care of my uh, my grandfather. Yeah, so you so you get the call, you know that that kid walking on the thirteen mile gravel road, and the guy who scoops you up and teaches you how to be in this world, and together you and him build this empire, and then you go out as a young pup full of piss and vinegar, and you mm. start turning stuff around on your own. You mm. start to prove yourself, and then you get this call, and he says, you know, hey Chris, I don't have that long left, so. How much more time did you get with him after that? Uh, I got six months with him after that phone call. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad, you know, I, I think a lot of people would have been like, okay, well, I've got a life up here. I'll have to, I'll have to tie up all these loose ends, you know, but there, there was something, something about the tone of his, his phone call, the tone of his voice that, you know, just, kind of told me that something was, was time. So I got down there within a, a few days. Uh, I started retaking over all of the, the enterprises. So the coal company was completely cl- closed down. Um, Fish Farm was still going gangbusters. Um, got my contracting company going back up and moving. Uh, the rest of the farm, like we had, we had cattle, we had corn planted, we had all the hay to put up. So like a hundred, uh, 226 acres of that hay that we were selling to Kentucky and Pennsylvania and all over the place. Um, so I, I came home immediately, took over all of the, the daily work that was needed, um, worked my ass off from very, very early in the morning until mid afternoon. And then I spent every afternoon until late, late in the night talking just sitting on the porch talking with my grandfather. We'd we'd eat bowls of uh, butter pecan ice cream and black cherry ice cream from a local creamery. We would get it. Um, they did uh, slow churn ice cream, so I'd go and get gallon tubs of that and bring it home, and we would play chess and scrabble, and we'd sit on the porch, and they had a beautiful pond right in front of their house with a big uh, trident-shaped fountain. Um, and we would we'd sit there, and we'd listen to the fountain, and he'd tell me old stories about you know, before I was born and early when I was born and thoughts that he had about milestones in my life. He always shared a real funny story. Um, I was, I was one year old, still in diapers, like just getting into, into walking and, and they bought me a a power wheels, uh, Jeep, uh, awesome little power wheels Jeep. And he said, you know, they, they expected me to just not take it on the first time, you know, that I'd take some kind of um, mentorship to get through it. And he said, they stuck me in that Jeep and I hit the pedal and I was weaving in and out of the, the columns and the piers on the front porch. He said, just didn't hit one of them. Didn't even come close. I was just weaving in and out of them like cones on an obstacle course. And he said, you know, at at that moment, he knew that I had some kind of affinity to running equipment and that I'd probably be an operator someday. And you know, told me all kinds of stories about his his time in the Army Corps of Engineers when he was over in in Korea and building landing strips and getting shot at and you know I I really learned in that six months I learned more than in you know twenty something years of life um, and a lot of those years living with him I learned more about him in that six months than I had in that in my entire lifespan. 
And it was such a joy to be able to, to spend that time with him, to see a different side of the man that I had always respected and admired and loved. Um, but yeah, I, I do wish that that time was, was longer. I've had regrets about, you know, moving away. Like I, I should have taken him up on that offer and, you know, had, had college paid for and stayed home and, and enjoyed more time with him. But, you know, everything happens for, for a reason. And I learned the things that I did to benefit me later in life. And I, I got to spend a lot of time with him before, okay. before the worst happened. And young men explore, right? We got to find our wild. Yes. They're always going our own direction. That's how yeah. it works. Yeah. And it, so that, that time so real really quick, did help to, say, uh-huh. uh, that time really did help to prove to me that it, it wasn't my grandfather's influence that, that propelled me to prominence in my hometown. You know, it might have helped me, especially early on, but it proved to me that I could make my own reputation, that people would view me as a intelligent person on my own, that people would view me as a hardworking person, an honest and ethical person on my own. Um, so, like, when I came back, I had an air of confidence that I didn't have when I left. Because even though I had a good rapport, I always felt like my grandfather was the reason for it. Right. So how how do you say goodbye to a guy like that? What was the close of Act 2 and the opening of Act 3? What, what was that like? Did he just, you know, because we never talk about this, right? When the, when yeah. the men in our life that we truly care about when they leave us. How, how did you say goodbye? So, I don't know that goodbye ever was really a formal, formal thing that was said. So like I, I spent as much time as I possibly could with him. As, as cancer quickly took over his body, he, he had less, he had a less active mind. He had a less active um, body. He moved less. He thought less. He spoke less but he never stopped playing Scrabble. So he, during that six months that I was home, there was only three days where we didn't play chess or play Scrabble. And it was the last three days that he was alive. And in that last three days, the, the doctor had told us that the, that the pain and discomfort from cancer was, was so great that basically his brain was, was shutting down at that point. So, you know, I, I spent as much time with him as possible. I played, you know, as many games as I could with him, you know, countless games of Scrabble, countless games of chess to try to help keep his mind off of things and listen to the same, you know, as he got later and later, he started repeating the stories because he couldn't remember that he had, had said them. And even though we never formally said goodbye, I just tried to make his, his last days as comfortable and as as the same as possible, you know, like I wasn't treating him any different than he would have been treated any day of his life. I wasn't like babying him because I always thought that'd be what he wanted. He'd want to go out with his dignity and, you know, things just being the same. Um, the day that he, he did pass away. Um, I was working. He, he passed away at like, 5.15 in the morning, I think. So I'd already been working for about an hour that day. Got the call 
uh, from my grandmother that he had passed. So I buttoned up the work that I was doing and went to the house and, you know, kind of paid my respects and, um, yeah. And you just kind of said my, my goodbye at that point in time and went back to work, you know, which does kind of sound like callous and, and harsh, but I thought, you know, I, I knew it was coming. I'd, I'd spent as much time as I possibly could with him. He was, he never took time off work. You know, he, he'd be there on Christmas morning for us to open the presents and then it's back to work, you know, for the rest of the day, you know, like even the, even the big holidays were only a, a, a brief, a brief escape from, from the work that needed to be done. So I, I kind of thought to myself that day, I said, okay, I've, I've came, I've kind of said my piece, I've, I've said my goodbye, and the thing that he would want me to do the most is to, you know, to kind of pick up my lip, dry off my eyes, and, and go back to work. So that's, that's exactly what I did. Um, I finished the day of work, I came back to, <coughs> came back to his house and made sure that everybody that needed to had come and, and said their goodbyes. Um, my father was still alive at that point. You know, he had, he had come to say goodbye to his father, my uncle, my mother, my brother, my grandmother, you know, everybody had gotten their chance to, to come and see him. And then that's when the, the, the funeral director and everybody came and, and gathered him up. So definitely a, a rough day definitely has, has pangs of sadness, um, still to this day that come up. But, you know, I I think there could have been other ways to handle it, but I think that I handled it the way that, that he would have wanted. Yeah, you know, there's no right way. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's just not a right way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so... I, I've never really with me experienced... Um, I've never really experienced a loss that I had cared about up to my... my um, paternal grandfather dying my paternal grandfather was the first grandparent that i lost um in october uh and then just within i think another month my i lost my maternal grandfather uh right after that so those two were kind of back to back but my the grandfather that raised me that was my first real experience with a a death that mattered to me and it it was very very Mm -hmm. foreign at that time Yeah, it's it's weird, right? Um, it's one of those things again that we don't do as men. You know, the, the women that I've known, some of them, I, I felt when we talked about these things, you know, they were kind of prepared. Oh, okay, here's what you have to do, and here's the role we play. But I don't know. For me, as a guy, I, I just it wasn't something I was taught. That mm-hmm. first one comes, it really hits you. Yeah, and man, it hits you deep, and you're just spinning there. But yeah. You know, but you don't spin off. You, you, you find your legs. Mm-hmm. And I want you to go forward with me just a little bit. Mm-hmm. To the birth of your son. What was life like then? What what had changed? Who were you? Who was he? What was that moment like? 
Well, that that was a very a very interesting moment. <clears throat> so, for all my life, I had swore that I would never have a child. And just to preface all this before I go into it, my my son was planned, meticulously planned. Uh, wasn't an accident. Wasn't unwanted at all. He was he was wanted. Um, but I've spent my entire life not wanting kids, and I, I think that anybody that has a rough childhood kind of walks into adulthood not wanting to bring a kid into the world because they might have a fear of becoming the parent that they had, or they might, you know, th- there are all kinds of fears that are attached to it. Um, so up until my my wife and I decided to have our son, I was still fervently against children. I I felt too selfish with my time. I felt too hot-headed, you know, still too full of piss and vinegar, always too invested in my in my career, my jobs. Um and I didn't want to sacrifice that time. You know, I was being really selfish about it. And my wife uh at that point in time, you know, kind of teary-eyed, she said I she didn't want you know, children for a long time as well, kind of undecided about it. So kind of teary eyed came up to me and said, you know, this is a, this is an opportunity that I, I don't want to miss out on. You know, there's, there's some part of life here that I think we're meant to go through and we need to do it. So just in typical fashion, like my grandfather probably did with my grandmother, my wife wanted it and it was a very simple, okay, you know, let's, and I think that she was almost taken aback by it because up to that point, every time, you know, it was brought up and she wasn't finitely wanting it. I'm like, I don't want kids. Um, but she, <laughs> she said once, she's like, I think I want one. I'm like, okay, let's do it. Um, so got pregnant really fast. Um, everything went really, really well. And, and I couldn't have been more excited to, to have him come. Um, when he was born, it was, it was a lot of joy. And I, I've mentioned this book a couple of times, the, the boy crisis, you know, I just finished reading it. A lot of the guys in the grog are reading it, but the, the book put, put it into better words than I think that I've ever been able to, to put it. And in the book, the doctor that wrote it says that a point in time when the, the wife gives birth to the child and the father sees that child or holds that child for the first time that a man goes from thinking that he understands love to actually knowing what love is. And, and I would say that that would be the closest verbal representation to for the moment that, that I saw my son for the first time. And I mean, there really isn't anything anything like that in the world. You know, I could almost feel feel my soul soften, my my heart grow, and that armor that we as men have on our emotions all the time. You know, my I joke with my wife all the time, uh, and we were actually you know kind of joking about one of the other guys in the grog. Uh, you know, where he was he was talking about he was shaking with excitement, and you know, I can say that I am excited about things, but I'm never so elated about anything that, you know, I would, I would shake with excitement kind of thing. But that yeah, one. Yeah, you're mo- a cool cat for sure. <laughs> yeah. 
that one moment was was where like the I was physically overwhelmed by the the warmth in in my soul you know in my heart of hearts the the connection that I had with my son immediately was was that one moment where I would have said shaking with excitement or boiling over with with love and affection and you know immediate connection with him and now he's he just turned two years old so he's been in my life for two years and he is just he's the absolute best part of every moment still to this day and probably will be for forever every time he picks up a um, he's got a chainsaw that's just like mine. We we both have matching steel chainsaws, and his is a little toy version with a rubber rubber chain. And every time I I go out to cut lumber, here he comes running with that steel chainsaw, and he goes, "Daddy saw, Daddy saw." Um, and you know that's that's really just a that's a food for the soul that you can't get anywhere else. Yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, it happens to us. I remember when my daughter was born, that first night in the hospital, they never warn you about that one. Mm-hmm. There's like all this energy and you're doing all this stuff. And as a guy, there's so much to do that it's fine. You're okay. And then it's all of a sudden it's midnight and it's one o'clock and you're sitting in this dark room and you're holding this kid and it's quiet. There's no more work to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, I mean, everything that you are, everything that you believe in, everything you think, I mean, you start going through it and you do, you index your life and you say, who am I? And am I ready for this? And at least for me, I was never afraid. I didn't I have said, time you know, to man, be afraid. I'm into this. <laughs> um, so the, the day that my son was born, so my wife and I, I, I didn't have any inspections or anything scheduled, um, she wasn't supposed to to go into labor. I think for another week or so. Uh, so we decided, like, hey, we're gonna have a we're gonna take a, a little day trip with each other. Um, we have a Cabela's that's not far away. I'm like, we'll we'll go and take a little walk around Cabela's. We'll we'll eat somewhere. You know, we'll, we'll just kind of make a day of it and we'll enjoy ourselves. So we we went. We walked all over the place, all over all kinds of stores and strip malls, and and ate a nice big lunch and big dinner, and uh, came home went to bed and I think, I think we both went to bed very early. Uh, and then about 11 o'clock she, she woke me up she's like, I think, I think I went in, I'm going into labor. Um, we took 35 minutes to get to the hospital. And from the moment we got to the hospital to him being born was almost four hours on the dot. So I didn't have time I didn't have time to take my uh, my coffee in my Yeti was still so hot when he was born. So while she was getting ready, I brewed a brewed a big cup of coffee, like a big travel mug of coffee, because I thought, all right, I'm about to be up for the next 20 hours, you know, because you hear all the horror stories from your close friends where they're like, yeah, I was in labor for for 25 hours before so and so came or yeah, I was in labor for like two days. I'm like, okay. I'm going to brace myself. So I had like snacks packed. I had my iPad. I had a book. I had my big travel mug of coffee. I had, I had everything. Yeah. The lawn chairs. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I remember going over to my Yeti and I've got my, my camera. I photographed everything. 
I went over to my Yeti, went to take a sip of my coffee and just scalded the whole inside of my mouth. And about 10 minutes later, (laughs) he had fully emerged. You know, he was, he was fully born. Um, everything was, everything was done. And I, I just kind of, after he had his, his skin to skin time and and left the room and everybody kind of, you know, sat down to, to relax a little bit. I remember just like expelling a bunch of air and just thinking, what the hell just happened? Like I've been here for four hours. How do I already have a son? You know, like how is he already here? You know, it's not 19 hours. It's not 24 hours or two days. Like I've, (laughs) I've had, uh, I've had like business lunches that lasted longer than that. I've, I had a podcast with Jake that almost lasted longer than that. Uh, it it was just absolutely (laughs) unbelievable. And, you know, wife went through everything great and healed up really fast. You know, we couldn't have asked for, uh, for an easier well, she couldn't have asked for an easier um, pregnancy, easier birth, and uh, then our our son's just—he's he, really got a uh, a sweet spirit. Okay, so I want I want to tie up this part of the story and and talk about a new part here, real quick, as we're going to the kind of the last act of this little interview here, and that is that so now there's this boy in the world, mm-hmm. and he has. He has a completely different life ahead of him. He's growing up on a on a beautiful little farm with bees buzzing in the field, and he has, you know, a father that loves him and is affectionate to him. He has orchards that he can wander through himself. The world that he is coming into is a completely different world because of the man that you became. And I think what's so interesting about it is. You know, we could say, okay, so the story stops there and that catches us up to real day. But, I, you know, that's not my deepest interest in it. See, to me, it's about how the story of a person shows up in the work they do and the things that they build. Right. And I want to talk about the knife that you're producing because, you know, this is the EDC community mm-hmm. and, and not to act like the knife is some big symbol at the end of it, but also because it's what makes the knife so interesting to me. You know, you and I would not have had this conversation if we had not, you know, met talking about the equipment that we use, you know, mm-hmm. working through the real world because it, it's actually, it's a big deal. I know you and I both have spent a lot of time working. We have, we're entrepreneurs. We have our thing going. And so here's the thing. This kid has this father and this father has a code. This father does incredible work in many, many, fields and the need to keep his hands moving and his mind moving has caused him to create these incredible products. And, and I know it's not just the stuff we see on the EDC side. I know your wife and ours too. And there's just a lot, the buildings that you've built, the house that you live in, that you have remodeled, right? You have a beautiful house mm-hmm. and you put your work into it. And, and then one day we're talking and we're all chatting in the crowd and we talk about maybe doing a knife. Catch me up to real quick the story of where this knife came from, because to me, and I'll tell you why I care, and I hear you know, why I think your listeners will care, because this knife is such an extension of the guy that I know. Mm-hmm. I feel like its qualities, where it came from, how it came to be, 
I feel like it's just the perfect exclamation point on this story to show you how the way that somebody is directly affects the things that they make with their hands. So walk me through the story of Gungnir before we wrap up. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, we were in the, in the grog group and we were having a bunch of conversations, uh, like we typically do about knives and knives deals and lock systems and how everything, you know, works and function. And I think that you were actually the one that brought up, you know, you'd, you'd like to see, you'd like to see a grog knife. You'd like to see a couple of guys in the group, uh, that kind of, uh, band together and, and, and make up a knife. And, um, I mentioned on Jake's podcast as well. Like I no sooner read that line and I just got, I just, you know, pulled out my, my sketch pad and a couple of my drawing instruments and, um, you know, a few hours went by and I'm still conversing back and forth in the grog, but I'm, I'm putting, uh, graphite to paper about four or five hours went by and I'm thinking, you know, every knife that I pick up because of the work that I do with my hands and the vast amounts of different work that I do, you know, like I might be working in a, in a beehive one minute and then I might be framing my, my barn the next minute. And then I might be inspecting a house and testing termite damage or prying open an attic scuttle. You know, there's like, there's such a vast amount of different things that I would do in a day that my, my blade assists with. And every, every knife that I've purchased, whereas, you know, 90% of them are very, very good. And they're very good in the work that they're intended to do. Um, there was always something that was just missing, you know, just a little thing missing, you know, like maybe the clip doesn't fit in the pocket, right. And it snags on my ladder when I'm carrying it through the house or, uh, maybe the tip's not quite strong enough to do the things that I do and the tip might bend or I'm worried about it breaking or maybe the lock system isn't strong enough. Maybe I question the lock system and I can't do the work that I want to with that knife and I have to carry a second tool or you know, maybe this knife's great but it's not quite big enough. You know, There was always something and I think that every designer that makes something and maybe makes something special, it comes from that point of making for a necessity. You know, I'm, I want to build something that fits the work that I do that maybe not everybody else does. Maybe not everybody else would design a knife that would fit that. So when I'm drawing on paper, you know, I'm drawing the, the dimensions of the blade and I'm thinking, okay, I want something that's sharp enough to do this task, but strong enough to do this task. And I want a, a blade that's hefty enough to have some weight, you know, that I can do this with it. So I'm, I'm drawing it out and I'm, I'm thinking of utilitarian blades and, blade stock and thickness and where the jimping should go to make the work the easiest possible and what's going to look nice and what's going to look classic. You know, what's going to be that, that number seven hairstyle from the 1920s, you know, something that this knife could have been made in, in the 1920s, the 1960s, the nineties, the two thousands, you know, maybe somebody will look at it in 20 years and think, well, that, that knife still has that timeless look. So I knew that, you know, I knew that I wanted a hollow grind because a hollow grind is my absolute favorite. It's nice and slicey, but it still has some strength and rigidity. I wanted M390 steel because I wanted that that toughness and that edge retention and that corrosion resistance. I don't live anywhere salty, so I don't have to have anything like, you know, H1 or, you know, something that's salt resistant. Uh, so M390 works perfect. And then going into that kind of classic design language, I wanted a bolster lock. Um, I wanted the micarta. I wanted a nice backspacer. 
I wanted a hefty feel. So, you know, this is one of the bigger knives that, that I have in my collection and probably one of the biggest knives that most people will have in, in theirs. Um, but I wanted it to be fidgety. I wanted it to be hardworking. I wanted it to be appealing to look at. And then, you know, one of the biggest things, and this was, uh, this was a design choice that I really wrestled back and forth with. And I'm, I'm so elated that Riot agreed to produce both of the clips because a clip is somewhere where I'll like 99% of a knife. And then I put the clip in my pocket and I hate the clip. And, and some of these higher end knives, whatever clip is on it is what's on it, period. Like you, you get a milled titanium clip and Lynch or, you know, anybody else, they're not going to make a clip for it because it's so specific that they can't get their, their marketing and their money out of it. So when I talked to Riot and I said, okay, I, I would really love to have a wire clip option, you know, to make it super easy to, to put in pocket, super easy to get out of pocket. It's one hand period all the time, no matter what pants you're wearing, golf pants, ripstop pants, denim, double denim, leather lined pockets, like whatever you've got, this wire clip bends and contorts and fits to it. It doesn't snag on anything. It is a working clip to fit a working knife. But they also agreed to do that milled titanium clip that just looks even classier <clears throat> and I designed that in a way that it it does the best that it can as a milled clip to do the same things that the wire clip does. But, you know, like that four or five hours of drawing, I I showed the, the sketch to the Grog group. Like, this is the knife. If I was designing a knife, this is the one that I would design. And you immediately spoke up, and you were like, you've got something there. I like I like the design of that. I like the language of that knife. You asked about the size because I didn't have it clearly marked on there. And I'm thinking, I, I told you, I'm like, I, need, I think you, I need a, a bigger than four inch blade with at least four inches of cutting edge and like a nine and a half, 10 inches of, of blade length. And you're like, I think you got something. Jake, I think said the same thing, Ricky and Bob. And, you know, I think everybody in the group was pretty unanimous. They were like, we, we like the look of that. And then I went into the more complex. Oh yeah. And we can be picky too. Yeah, like yeah, I know I a lot of us are very guys. nice on our pages. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, think about all the things that that we have received in, and then passed on, and never put it on the page because we're like, I just I can't say enough good stuff about it. It it doesn't qualify. I've got to push it on. Yeah, yeah. And um, that one was there. And and by the way, stop me if you've heard this story before, right? But you tried to de- design a knife that is incredibly hardworking. Mm-hmm. Okay, that I mean, I look at this knife and I think Empire Builder. I mean, this is the knife that an empire builder would have in their pocket. And, and let's not, let's be really real here, right? I mean, you, the empire that you built with your, with your grandfather, I mean, that paid you well enough that if you had wanted to slack off after that through your years, you could have, you work like you do because you choose to work. Yeah. You, you decided to be there. To me, this knife is choosing to go to work with you. There yeah. is a classicness about it. There, it, it is very confident, has a point of view in the design and what it is. It's very different than everything else, and yet it's very familiar. It's not trying to – it doesn't look like it just landed. You know, some people like that knife design. Um, like it just came in from outer space. It's, it, it's um, There's a sense of old school cool to it already. Yeah. And uh, I just – I think you nailed it. I think, honestly, speaking as a picky guy, I think it's a really brilliant design. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. It's, it's definitely one of those knives, especially getting it physically in hand. It's one of those things, even after a long time of carrying it, I almost get excited when something comes up. So I posted my Instagram story today. Um, I'm, I'm mowing down the, down the yard. You know, there are some areas where of the yard that I don't always mow because, you know, they're not needed. Um, but we have some loggers coming in to log some of our black walnut, uh, this coming week. And I decided to mow all of that down to make it a little bit easier for them to get in and do their job. Well, the little guy must've carried some of my ratchet straps, um, must have taken them out of the bed of my truck or off the trailer and, you know, just dropped them in that tall grass before it was tall grass. So I'm, I'm out there mowing and all of a sudden I hear the, the tink of the, the ratchet. And then I hear the engine kind of die down as the 20 foot heavy nylon strap gets wrapped around all of the mower blades. And I would say like 90% of the time I would have been real pissy about that happening. It's like, damn it, I got to stop mowing and I got to spend the next 30 minutes cutting this nylon mesh out of all of my mower blades. But I was actually kind of excited at that point. I was like, okay, I'm like, this is a good test for this knife. Like this, this super thick nylon strap right up against hardened metal shafts for the mower blades. So like you, you only get about eight inches between the bottom of the mower deck and the ground when you don't have have it put up on ramps, which I don't have any ramps. Um, I typically just take the mower deck off if I have something that I have to do like that. So my chest and my shoulder like doesn't fit under the mower deck. So I'm in there and I'm just like cranking on this knife, cutting that nylon out. Like kind of, I can hear the blade kind of ticking up against the, the hardened metal shafts and the areas of the, where the deck connects to the blades. And it, it was just exciting to, to have a knife that I'm like, okay, the blade's big enough that I'm not going to like pull down this strap and then like go to push it back and the tip catch in the, in the mesh. And then we have to reposition my hand and, you know, get into that, that knife. And I don't want to be overly dramatic, like some ShamWow guy that's like, Oh, look, I spilled five gallons of water on the floor that nobody would ever do. But a, a smaller knife, you know, it, it doesn't always fit some of those tasks as efficiently as a bigger knife does. So I, it took me all of about seven or eight minutes with this razor sharp M three ninety hollow grind to, to cut all of that, that strap out of my mower blades, you know, get it all piled up, throw it in the, in the bin outside and uh, be back to mowing. And then I'm, I'm mowing and I'm flipping the knife open and I'm, you know, kind of doing the hair test on my arm and, I just spent that time like brushing this blade up against hardened metal and kind of hearing it tank and clank off of stuff. And it's still shaving sharp. And I still have yet to sharpen this one. So it's, it's been tested by me and abused by me for like four or five days before I sent it off to you and then used by you at, as like a, a pit boss knife and, you know, doing some mild gardening and then being used by Jake and him abusing it for, for his review and to give me input about it. And then coming back to me to be abused some more. And it's just like, I remember so many knives that I've had over the years where it's like, okay, it's in my pocket and it's doing those Amazon box warrior tasks. You know, it's cutting tape, it's cutting zip ties. It's, you know, maybe cutting this or that. Uh, but then every time you do a hard task, 
okay, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to pull out the stones and, and touch that edge up because the steel rolled or, you know, this happened or that happened, or maybe it's super thick, hardened steel, but it, because it's super thick and hardened steel, it doesn't cut very well because you're, you're trying to push a, um, a, basically a big blunt object that's been tried to sharpen through, through something because it's so thick behind the edge. And, the knife has done so much work and it still looks super clean. You know, I've, I've had it crawling in crawl spaces and up in attics and there's no snail trails. There's no dents. There's no dings. You know, the satin finish on the blade still looks impeccable after chopping on tree stumps and getting busted up. The edge is still really, really great. You know, I'm, it's still shaving sharp and I could probably hit it with a leather strop and make it just, honed to a razor again it's it's just a knife that okay go ahead okay so real quick i i think i need to make a note for your listeners here so chris is not the kind of guy who puts a knife a nice knife in his pocket and goes like wandering around through his day not using it and then you know sees that he's alone and kind of looks around and decides you know i should take a picture of my knife and puts it out and makes it free i mean Chris is using his knife. So like we all look at him as a walking torture test hmm. uh, in the chat. And if, if, if it can pass the Chris test, this is a thing. And I have bought some of your older knives. Chris, I know this. I mean, I bought a, a Sabenza off of you that had been used so much. I mean, I don't know if half the people in the CRK world have ever even dreamed of using their knife as much as this one was. It, these things can be beat up sometimes to be really honest when they come in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so, you know, like in talking about how this knife is performing, it, it, I'm not trying to like give you a commercial and that's not your way. Like we really, there's really an interesting part of this, which is like, okay, how much can this thing take before it taps out? Because the walking torture test will get it there if it can. Now yeah. you coming through your background, right? So now your story's out there. And people have heard it and they understand this eye for quality. They understand where it came from. They understand what you, what you went through. They understand who you became. They understand how you do the work that you do. And I, that would be somebody I would say that I would very, very much trust their taste when it came to something that was both, you know, beautiful and could make its distance. Okay. It could go the distance. And the whole time from that guy, the whole time there was only one maker you wanted to make this knife for you. So dish just a little bit on the OEM and where it's made because that's not an accidental choice. Oh yeah. When, when I designed the knife, um, I, I really only designed it to be manufactured by Riot and, you know, if there if there was an American OEM that could do anything close to what Riot does, I would definitely, you know, go to them. But, you know, the unfortunate part is I don't think that there is one and there may not be one for, for quite some time. But Riot just does. Yeah, Koenig had capacity. I know yeah, you would trust him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, if if, if Koenig would, uh, would do the OEM sphere or take on a design or if I could ever get, you know, a design to be taken on by by Bill, I, I'd, I'd roll over and die right there because, you know, Koenig um, – is probably one of the absolute best production knives that I've ever picked up. But when you're looking at the non-American sphere, I think that Riot is the over the seas, 
uh, company that comes as close as possible. And when I think of like every Riot built knife that I have, there's unless there's a glaring design issue, the knife is is wonderful. You know, it has no centering issues. It has no issues with opening and closing, being drop shut. It's the finish is really really good for for a production OEM. So when I made my design, Riot was the was the only choice, and I reached out to the other ones. You know, Bestech and We and um, I think that was it. Um, you know, just because I thought, you know, I want to get, I want to get a gauge of, of the pricing, but I pretty well thought if Riot wasn't going to take it on that, you know, it would just be dead in the water. Like I, I wouldn't do it. Um, because I, I've seen the work out of we, and I've seen the work out of best tech and they've, they've both fallen short when it comes to what I would use the knife for and how it would, how it would handle the day to day. Uh, so yeah, Riot yeah, was the only. Riot was the only choice. Yeah, and so I, I I do think that that is interesting because sometimes if you don't follow a nice development story, you almost think that who you partner with to manufacture it is, is an accident or an afterthought. And to me, it's so interesting that you know your lifestyle is a torture test, and you had this one maker in mind and not only did you get them, but then you had to get to keep working it out. You had to go back and forth. You had to get prototypes. And then finally, you know, the way that these things work is that you can't always tell who your maker is. So sometimes, and, and it might've happened here, you would have been able to use them, but you might not have been able to tell anybody. It's how the contracts work. Mm-hmm. But in your case, you were able to work it out. It's at the right price point. They're good to go. Uh, when does this thing come out? So when do you get to launch your first knife? That's my first question. And my second question is, and I hear that your intent is not just to launch one little knife, you know, as a, Hey, I did it and move on. But in typical style of you and, and the, and the man who raised you, right. Um, you're going to go, you're going to go a mile deep on this one. You want to create more than one knife. If you can, you want to start a company, right? For, for sure. Um, so the pre-orders for, for Gung Nier are going to go live July 11th. And I've started to update the website. Uh, I've been going into my, my final line of, of alterations to the, uh, to the prototype. So the, the few changes that needed to be made to it um, are being finalized, and I'm updating the website accordingly. Um, so it, it officially now says that the, the pre-order will open up July 11th. Um, and that... That time is really, really strategic. Um, and, you know, we've talked about it in the Grog group, and you and I have talked about it. Um, I I want this knife to be something that, that everybody can get a hold of. So I really wanted to choose a time that would be the easiest for somebody to, to get it. So I didn't want to plan it for, you know, this month because just about um, – a huge portion of the the knife community is is pouring their money into going to blade show and picking up knives from blade show or having proxies pick up knives from blade show or all of these exclusive drops that all of these online companies are are doing now so i didn't want to further stress people this month um which the you know we could go ahead and do the proto or the uh, the pre-order you know right now as far as riot is concerned like they're they're ready to go um, but I didn't want to put the stress on people to to try to take on 
Blade Show and all of the exclusives that are coming out and possibly miss out on something else because they wanted this knife. Uh, and then the same thing for July. I didn't want to stress people out too early. Um, and I wanted them to be able to enjoy the the Independence Day weekend, you know, enjoy themselves, enjoy their family. And then after that, you know, as things calm down, kind of take uh, take their chance at getting gung near. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be coming out. Uh, and this July. one... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, we got, just so you listeners know, if we accidentally cut each other off here, we're working with a little bit of a delay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Chris, real quick. So, uh, when Gungnir comes out, you uh, you're not going to take all that profit and just dump it back into the empire. My understanding is you're going to roll that straight back into your second design, and yes. you're going to see if you can't pull start something special here, right? For sure. Yeah. So, um, including Gungnir. I have uh, four knives, uh, 2D drawings, dimensions, all the math um, rolled out on them. So four knives are ready to go. Uh, when pre-orders for Gungnir goes live, we're going to fully fund the production run for Gungnir. Um, I've got some really sweet stuff uh, in the lineup for what will be coming out with Gungnir. So Gungnir is going to be shipping in a Pelican-style case. Uh, with a bottle of KPL knife pivot lube uh, with it, some extra hardware for those that like to mod their knives. So you'll get some some extra scale screws and things like that. And I'm still working out those details with Riot, um, but including a lot of goodies in there. So the profits aren't going to be immense because I'm trying to pour as much money as possible into the actual knife itself. And the price point for the knife is pretty much rock bottom as to what it can be already because most knives that are in this size classification are are selling at 500 or 550 plus so we're already about 100 to 150 dollars under what the what the standard market value for a knife this size with these materials are or is um but any profits that we do have from from gungnir are going to go right into the next two prototypes. Uh, so I was going to do one prototype from this batch, but I've decided to do two. Uh, and it's going to be two really interesting knives, which I'll, I'll kind of save save the details on it um, for, for later on when those prototypes are done and ready and, and I can kind of actually share the, the physical form of them. But they're going to be two knives that are vastly different from from Gungnir. So both of them will be in their own class of of knives, knife uses, but they're all going to be on every knife that I design is going to have a similar uh, design aesthetic and a um, and a similar goal to be very very hard working blades. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I'll I will wrap this up here tonight. Then to say this, if someone were to ask you, I mean, what I hope we've been able to give is kind of a behind the scenes story. Of, you know, if I wanted to become a knife maker, if I wanted to open my own, if I just want to become an entrepreneur, what what's that story look like? And to me, it goes to the human story. That human story catches up to the business story. And if somebody said, Chris, how do I start a knife company? You could either answer, well, 
it takes some sketching and some back and forth and some prototypes in about six months. You could say, well, um, it takes, it takes 35 years and a lot of hard work to understand, you know, how to build something that lasts. Or I think, or I think you could say, look, great knife companies might just come out of 13 mile walks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to flip it around. I know you're not a guy who would tell your story very openly. I really appreciate you doing what it feels like we as guys are so bad at doing, which is just, you know, pour the whiskey and sit there and actually just talk about it. The good, the bad, the ugly, the emotions, not just the victory story, but the actual how the hell did we get here. Uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, I really, really do. And, man, I'm looking forward to uh, supporting and partnering with your work and your development in whatever ways I can going forward. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I really appreciate you uh, kind of kind of pushing me into or convincing me uh, to do this. It's it's um it's been one of those chicken soup for the soul kind of kind of interviews where I, I think that you know a lot of the stuff that we we've talked about is not something like you said that I would ever ever talk about on my own. You know, nobody would probably ever know any of those background things um, about me. But you know, like you said, I think I think that a lot of this might help someone else that you know is out there maybe maybe they had some hardships in life maybe they have hardships now um but it's not ever something that has to to hold you back from from doing something we all have the ability to do great things and the only thing that's that's keeping us from it is holding on to the past holding on to insecurities and we really just need to be more like the duck uh, that lets the water flow off its back Man, I think it's beautiful. Well, look, I I, uh, I will raise a glass to you and to your family, to your kickoff. And uh, with luck, we will do something like this here again. I hope to, I hope to see you and, and let's talk again on the podcast sometime soon. Oh, for sure. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, MB. All right. So thank you, everybody, for taking the time. Uh, to listen to this, to get to know me a little bit better. Uh, I really hope, uh, and it was the the goal of uh, doing this and agreeing to this, um, that maybe some of the things that I would talk to would help uh, other people that may have gone through similar situations or may be going through similar situations now. Uh, I hope that everybody got uh, some sustenance and some good content here. And again, thank you. For tuning in. Until next time, this is Chris. Have a good day.